We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. What happens if if you're sitting on a three-legged stool and one of the legs breaks? It's the end is near, right? Now, it's different with a four-legged stool, right? I mean, a four-legged stool, I mean, in theory, the way it's laid out, it could, it could remain standing with a broken leg. S- spreading the good news of God's kingdom, it's a three-legged stool. It's, it's composed of three elements. It requires, to spread the good news, requires word, deed, and community. Now turn to the back of the worship guide. On the inside of the back cover, at the top of the page, there's a statement, our purpose. We exist to embrace, embody, and spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world. Now get this. Notice how we spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom throughout Birmingham and the world. In word, deed, and community. All three are necessary for what we call evangelism. And no matter how well you do one of them, if you neglect the other, you're trying to sit on a three-legged stool with one of the legs broken, or two of the legs broken, depending on the the church you're involved with, right? Now, tonight is the last of six sermons in a series called Discovering Christianity. And tonight, we're going to focus on the way in which Christian community is, is fundamental to spreading the gospel of Christ's kingdom. And there is no scripture that more profoundly addresses the relationship of the community life of a church to the spread of the gospel than John chapter 17. This is the great prayer that Jesus prays right before, as Rebecca said, he's betrayed by Judas, arrested, tortured, crucified, and died. This is the, some people refer to this as the great high priestly prayer because he's praying it as our priest. Now, out of the incredible feast of John 17, uh, we can, we've got to limit ourselves because, well, you don't have the stamina and I don't have the ability to really work our way through the whole prayer. So, we're going to limit ourselves to three entrees from this incredible feast that's laid out in front of us. And the first course that we need to receive is what Jesus tells us in this prayer about the nature of Christian community. Look at verse 22. John chapter 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. We being Jesus talking to the Father. Even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now this is just one example. In fact, four times in this prayer, Jesus describes the unique character of Christian community in terms of the incredible intimacy between He and the Father. Now, six weeks ago, I preached about that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on Trinity Sunday. And I talked about the idea of perichoresis. Now, not your everyday word, I know, but it's so very important. Remember, it comes from two Greek words, 
peri, which means to go around, we periscope, and choreo, which we have in our word choreography, and it means dance. And it's, it's, it's what the church has used for centuries to describe the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as the divine dance. This image of the Father and the Son and the Spirit constantly orbiting around one another in complete self-giving love, each centering on the glory of the other. And none, none of them, not the Father, not the Son, or the Spirit, none demands that the other center around themselves, but each voluntarily circles the other and, and pours out love and delight and adoration on the other. Now, this interdependence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, this interpenetration, this oneness, Jesus, this is astounding. Jesus is telling us that's Christian unity. That's Christian community. That's the incredible gift that Jesus prayed for us to have, and God answers the prayers of a righteous man. That is the incredible gift that God has given to us. Now, this is such a fundamentally different experience of relationship than we're accustomed to in this world. For instance, we've all been trained as Americans that when we walk into a room, we size everybody up. We notice the people that are like us, right? Birds of a feather flock together. Relationships, we've been taught, are built on chemistry or affinity. People who look like you, who you can have fun with, who you share common hobbies with, golf or tennis or cooking or traveling or whatever. People that you have a common socioeconomic status with or common commitment to ecology, you, you pick it. We've been taught that's the way relationships occur. But in this prayer, there is an entirely different nature of relationship that's revealed. Look, look closely at verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, talking about his immediate followers in that historical point in time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's Christians today, right? Peter told Joe and Joe told Bubba and Bubba told Sally and Sally told me. So those who will believe through the word of the disciples, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now jump down to verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now what I'm trying to show you is that in Jesus's prayer, we see that the basis of this incredible intimacy, the kind of foundation of it, is that we, me and Alan, are both in Christ. And Christ is in me, and Christ is in Alan. See, the source, the secret of Christian community is truth and a common experience of Christ. It's, it's not educational background or class or political views or the country club you're a part of or your favorite college football team. Now, this really cuts against the grain of the way we've been programmed, of the way our community operates. 
The idea that Christian community has nothing to do with mutual compatibility. That's shocking. The idea that similarities in educational background or your psychological makeup or your social status, this can bring us together initially, but it can never be the basis of real Christian community. This kind of oneness that Jesus is praying about, it can only be grounded in God who has called this church together. It can only be kind of rooted in the God that calls us together, not in our attractiveness to each other. The mystery of Christian community is that it embraces all people, whatever our differences, and it allows us to live together as brothers and sisters of Christ and children of His Father. Now, one of the greatest blessings that all things new have is that many of the people who started All Things New have had the privilege of going on international mission trips. And if you've ever spoken with a Christian from another culture, you know that jolt of joy when you discover that the same experience of Christ that's revolutionizing your life is revolutionizing their life? That, that the kingdom of God is at the center of their existence. And in that moment, you know who they are. And they know who you are. Because Christian unity, it's based on truth. And the fact that I am in Christ, and He is in me. I've met people who are so utterly different from me that we can barely even communicate in the same language. But there is a clear and deep sense. Here is my brother or my sister in Christ. Now, as our church, as all things new, as we commit ourselves to spreading the kingdom of God, we are committing ourselves to talking about that. Shy people and mouthy people. We're all committing ourselves. At some point, we've got to talk about the kingdom of God. And we're committing ourselves to deeds of mercy and justice. And we are committing ourselves to community life. We're committing ourselves to protecting the deep oneness that Christ gives to us. And this brings us to the second course of the feast from John 17, When we maintain the astounding oneness that Christ gives us, when we protect it and we live into that as a Christian community, look what Jesus prayed in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, Christianity has some audacious claims, okay? Let's just admit it. 
And there's some things about Christianity that lots of people buy into, whether they're Christians or not. The whole um, golden rule ethic, loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, working hard and contributing to society, uh, stewarding the environment, whether you, you actually live them out or not, many people find these ideas of Christianity admirable. And they at least kind of give them lip service. But look back at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Now, this idea that the Christian God is the only God, and that there are no other gods, not in the real sense, there are other gods we make, but there are no other gods in existence other than the Christian God, and that Jesus alone is the revelation of that God? That God himself became a human, was born of a virgin, walked around the dusty paths of Palestine 2,000 years ago? Now we're getting into the hard-to-believe realm, right? Now we're getting into the, the kind of rude and arrogant claims of Christianity. And on top of that, Jesus kind of pushes you in the chest because he not only demands that he's the only one, he demands that you serve him and him only for your whole life, with all of your life, completely. Now that's an audacious claim. That's a hard pill to swallow. And yet Jesus tells us here that he can create a loving unity in a church that is of such a nature, it can knock flat all the resistance your coworker has to those audacious claims. He can do something that is so profound in the life of a church, that it can roll right over all of the resistance to the exclusive, hard-to-believe, audacious, weird, threatening claims of Christ. The deep oneness and unity that Christ offers us is so powerful that it can overcome enormous hurdles Hurdles that might be in your life or in the life of people you know and love and work with, it can overcome those hurdles to the, to the point that it astounds your friends into believing. What we learn here is that our contribution as a church to the spread of Christianity in this community and around the world can only be as great is our unity. That our ability to spread God's kingdom is directly related to the depth and the visibility of our oneness. The secret power of mission is not individuals or organization or whatever your flavor is, no organization. The secret power of the mission of the church is its diverse community of individuals who are orbiting around one another in self-giving love. Each one of us centering on the needs of the other. None of us demanding that any other orbit around our glory each of us voluntarily circling the other persons, pouring out love 
and delight and adoration on each other. That's the secret of powerful mission. Now, do you see that coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's the end of your love affair with autonomy? Individualism. It's the central value of Western culture. Individual autonomy. That's the air we breathe from Captain Ahab and Moby Dick to the Lone Ranger. Our society is built on individualism. We nurse on it from the moment we're born, from Henry David Thoreau's two years, two months, and two days in the cabin he built on Walden, all the way down the line to Alexander Supertramp hiking his way into the wild. This fierce, relentless individualism, it is at the core of our identity as Americans. And 200 years ago, or 17 years ago, nothing's changed. Our hyper-individualism remains the same dead-end road that it's always been. The book of Ecclesiastes. In the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, there are more first-person singular pronouns than any other place in the Bible. I said in my heart, I will, I, I, I. I'm going to discover truth. I'm striking out on my own. And you know where that book ends? Vanity of vanity, all is vain. The path of fierce individualism has been exposed for bankruptcy. But still, we insist on finding ourselves by ourselves. We fight to protect our privacy. We fight anything that limits our autonomy and our freedom. If you try to get into my business, I'm out of here. Now, don't get me wrong. We're all into joining groups, right? Just so long as they're loose connections. We might volunteer a few hours a week for this or that, but we're not going to join any organization that demands loyalty and commitment for the long haul. Now, I'm not trying to sort out the good guys from the bad guys. We're all complicit. This impulse runs right through the center of all of us. And if we're listening honestly to Jesus' prayer in John 17, this is tough for all of us. This is a threat to every single one of us. Jesus does not allow us to pray, my Father who art in heaven. Does he? Every Sunday, what do we pray? Our Father. If you think that you can come to church and get a bottle of inspiration and go home and use it in the privacy of your own house, you're wrong. Here, in Jesus' prayer, we're shown the true nature of Christianity. To be a Christian is to be in the community of Christians. You have to be accountable and you have to be available to other people to receive God's good gifts. Coming to Jesus is the end of your private world. If you think that you can come to church and get a bit of truth and inspiration and then go home, you don't understand the teaching of our Lord. To spread the gospel of Christ's kingdom, we, all things new, we must get as good at community life 
as we are talking about the kingdom. And we must commit ourselves and invest as much time in the community life as we do in talking about the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom. Spreading the gospel. It's a three-legged stool. This is how all things new is going to damage the status quo of over the mountain. This is how we are going to push back the forces of darkness. What did Jesus say to Peter? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now let's move to our third and final entree from the banquet of John 17. It's this. The unity and the deep intimate oneness that, that I'm talking about tonight, it's not a goal. It's a gift that's already been given. And the nuance of those two things is very important for how we leave here. You see, our job is not to whip up this kind of unity. It's already been given to us. Our job is to protect it and to maintain it. Just before his betrayal, Jesus fervently prayed for our oneness. And God answered his prayer. You know that he did. Chris, it's when you're in Peru, right? And you meet a Christian. What's there? You don't have to create it, right? What happens when you meet somebody and all of a sudden you realize the king's at the center of their life? It's already there, this kind of deep interdependence, interpenetration, this idea that I know you and you know me. See, that's the default. Our job is to protect that. Now, at this point, I think it's very helpful for us to think about the life of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, and to look at his life in terms of kind of four primary crises that he went through. Because I think that if we, if we do that, it'll, it'll help us understand what I mean by protecting and maintaining a unity that's, that's a real gift and is already given to this church. Now, when we look at the life of Peter, we can see these kind of four great moments of crises as he followed Jesus. Now, the first moment of crisis was when, of crisis was when Jesus said, follow me. And, and Jesus actually literally meant it. He meant, like, stand up and walk behind me for the next three years, right? And we're going to kind of wander around Palestine. So for Peter, the first crisis was he had to leave his family, right? And he had to leave his job and security and all of that kind of stuff. Now, the next crisis that, that Peter went through was when he discovered that Jesus was not who he thought and wanted him to be. He preferred a Jesus that was a prophetic and messianic kind of figure and did not insist on washing feet and talking about suffering and death so much. This was a crisis for Peter. The third crisis was when Jesus became weak and died, and it shattered Peter. And then the fourth crisis, the, 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 the hardest crisis of all that Peter faced, was when Peter denied Jesus and in that moment, Peter lost all the illusions that he had carried about himself. Now, these four crises that Peter went through in following Jesus, they are the four great crises that our church is going to face. Now, the first is the easiest. 
When you are initially drawn into the community of all things new, there will always be a part of you that clings to the values you have to leave behind. Now, tonight I've already talked about the value of autonomy. And if God is calling you into the life of this church, you're going to have to give that up. And to commit yourself to all things new, you're going to have to kind of yield your value system of strength and power and control and efficiency. To join all things new, you're joining a body, not a corporation or a machine. See, the the joining of a a community like this is always going to lead you to a crisis of your own value system that you need to leave behind. The the second crisis that that all things new is going to face will occur the moment you discover that we're not as good of a church as you thought we were. If you're leaving a broken church and God leads you to join all things new, one day the honeymoon's going to be over, right? Right? And all the illusions are going to crumble because I'm going to sin against you. You're going to be sick and I'm not going to visit you. I'm going to be selfish. And somebody else in the room is going to offend you in some way. And we're going to make a mistake. And I'm going to go through a dry period in my sermons where they get really boring. I know they're not like that now, but one day. And the worship services are going to lose their luster. And friendships are going to begin to taste of ash and feel shallow. And the experience of community that you had when you first started dating us, it's going to fall away. And this great disillusionment is going to wash over you. Because you see, people who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the actual Christian community they're involved with, they destroy that Christian community even when their intentions are good. And God has to shatter that out of all of us. And you know how he shatters it? He pushes you into a corner to decide what you're going to take. The endless dream that causes people to jump from church to church to church looking for the perfect one? Or are you going to embrace the reality of the community at hand? Now, the third crisis is when you feel misunderstood or rejected by the church. Maybe there's going to come a day when you commit yourself to this and we don't ask you to fill a position of leadership that you had been expecting or wanting. Or I I don't know. You pick your rejection of flavor and I promise it'll happen. The fourth crisis, it's the hardest of all. It's going to occur when you fail. And your failure is writ large publicly. And you are covered in shame. And you're disappointed in yourself for your jealousy or your anger or your frustration. And it will be easier for you to leave this group and to go somewhere else than it will be to live among people who know your laundry and know your failure. Now, When I say that unity is a gift we must protect, I mean it is a gift that must be protected as we go through those four crises. The depth of community that will satisfy your soul because you were made for this. You were made for deep intimacy. 
You must learn how to embrace and enjoy unity as you walk through those four crises or you will be forever searching for something that's missing. But here's the neat thing. Each of these crises is really the opportunity for a deeper, more soul-satisfying experience of Christ and for a greater inner freedom to be who you were made to be. All four of these crises, surrendering your autonomy, giving up your idealized view of the church, denying your pride, letting the truth about your brokenness be uncovered, all four of these crises are really about losing an illusion and welcoming reality and growing in community. Now, being an American, like I've already said, is to be raised in the cult of self-reliance. We've all been socialized into this idea that you're supposed to worship individual achievement. We're bred on self-sufficiency. Because of that, this leg of the stool of evangelism is going to be the hardest for all things new. It's going to be easier for us, even for the shy ones among us, to share our faith verbally or to demonstrate the kingdom through acts of mercy and justice than it is to actually walk into deep oneness with one another. But listen to Hebrews 7.25. Just listen to it. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. It's going to be very hard for me to let you keep being a part of my life when you discover how really selfish I am. But the reason we can do it is because in this exact moment, Christ is kneeling before the Father and he's praying for you and me in this room right now. He is interceding for us and that's why he can save us to the uttermost. He can save us from this culture. He can save us from our autonomy. He can save us from our pride. He can save us from our illusions. He can do it. Why? Because he will never ever quit praying for us and the Father will never quit answering the prayers of his son. God can save us from our fierce individualism and our relentless autonomy because Christ is faithfully praying always for Fran by name before the Father. Now, as we continue as a church to focus on spreading the gospel of God's kingdom. We've got to get good at talking about it in ways that are relevant and matter and connect. And we've got to get very good at confronting injustice and demonstrating the kingdom through acts of mercy and kindness, laying hands on the sick and seeing them healed. We've got to get good at those things. And we've also, we've got to refuse to lose our commitment to the inner life 
of this community. We've got to refuse to ever stop making ourselves accountable and available to one another. Because we want to spread the kingdom. Let's pray.